0: Uh, for a moment, at Exodus chapter 14, 14 and then uh, Luke chapter 2, uh, and um, I realize as I think about the subject of silence, uh, those you moms and moms and dads with young ones, uh, there might be a sense of we're, we're speaking on silence, and all of a sudden your child cries out. Don't don't worry, I can handle that. Uh, so I want to give you give you a comfort there, um, and uh, we, we love the sound of covenant children expressing their participation in the service as well. So. Um, I am a student of modern life. I am curious as to how we got here. Um, I like figuring those things out. I can't say that I figured it all out, but I do know that we live in an incredible age. Uh, To remind us of this incredible age, I want to bring up to you uh, two uh, spacecraft. Uh, I don't know if many of you are aware of a spacecraft called the Rosetta um, spacecraft. It's called the Rosetta. I'm sure it has a more sophisticated name, but it goes by the Rosetta. We we get Smithsonian Magazine at home, and uh, every once in a while I read it. And so I was reading about this Rosetta spacecraft, and it was launched in 2004. It is solar-powered, and it is going to rendezvous in November 2015 with a comet, that the comet has been on this billion-mile orbit in our solar system, and we're going to catch this thing as it gets fairly close to us. And this Rosetta spacecraft is going to send out a little, uh, a little tiny spacecraft, about 200 pounds. And that little tiny spacecraft is going to land on this comet bore a hole in the comet about nine inches down and then analyze what is in the comet and then send that back to Earth. That's the age we live in. There used to be a time when comets would streak across the Earth or, or the sky and people had no idea what it was. And now we know so much about comets that we can actually trace them and trace their orbit and actually land on them. That's the world we live in. Um, 2012, there was this uh, daredevil named Felix Baumgartner. And uh, he it was an Austrian who had jumped off every possible cliff and building on this earth and then figured out that he wanted to jump from Stratosphere, 24 miles high. And so uh, a company called Red Bull got behind this. And the Red Bull Stratos, not sure that's quite up there with the Apollo program or the other things. But the Red Bull Stratos was carried up w- in balloons with uh, Felix there. And uh, October of 2012, he, he jumped uh, on the edge of our gravity uh, edge of our atmosphere I should say and uh, he, he broke a speed record 840 some miles an hour uh, went through the uh, speed of sound without a vehicle first time, I mean there's multiple records that he broke and didn't break a bone and landed on the desert floor of uh, near Roswell, New Mexico and walked around as if he had just, I don't know been riding a unicycle for a while, I mean, just just had a great time. Fell from, from space, um, and the craziest thing was uh, around the office. I was kind of cruising around. I, I think I'd seen it. it was a Saturday or something, and then I was talking about it the following week. And no, almost uh, yeah, I kind of heard uh, yeah, I heard about that a little bit. Yeah, but what do you? This guy just fell from space. It was twenty four miles. Did anybody see that? And and it was interesting because it it, it, it just seemed like it's just like, I don't know, we land on comets, we jump out of this thing, we land, this is what we do. This is the era in which we live. When I fly on an airplane, if the person is next to me, I was as a young child very influenced by the uh, Wright brothers, um, Orville and Wilbur. Their father was a minister who thought they were up to no good out there in the uh, the bicycle shop and discouraged them, and they kept at it, and... um, I, when I'm on an airplane and the person next to me is talkative, just about at the, at the point when that triple seven has this incredible thrust and we are just this great propulsion brought into or, uh, into uh, into air, uh, I turn to the person and I say, "Imagine if Orville and Wilbur could see us now." And when I fly, there is, unless the person is the first time they've ever flown, no one seems to be uh, amazed at what's happening. We live in an age where technological marvels, or as the songwriter Paul Simon says, we live in an age of miracles and wonder. We, we live in an age where we are unaffected by extraordinary accomplishments and technology. It's just sort of how we live, and we are unaffected by it. And I am curious about how you are interacting with this idea that God became incarnate. Is it a, just sort of a familiar thing to you? Is it something that you are just, yeah, in sort of a, sort of a ho-hum, of course, Response. Uh, and this morning, what we're looking at just briefly is the idea that God became incarnate and it produced certain kinds of gifts in people. It it brought about a change in people. It was so extraordinary that people responded to it, and the response is an indicator that it was life-changing. Now, there are two big deliverances in the Bible. One is the deliverance under Moses, the Exodus, and that deliverance is accompanied with lots of revelation, so you have a lot of Scripture being put together during that time. So a great act of God, and then a lot of revelation explaining the significance of the act. That's the Exodus, and then there is a second Moses who comes along, a second Exodus, far more significant, where the final Moses, Jesus, comes, and there is a lot of revelation explaining, in, put in Scripture, to explain the significance of these events. In order For us this morning, just briefly, I want you to look at Exodus chapter 14. You have it there for you. In your worship folder, if you have your Bibles, take a look at it. But it is instructive for us this morning to look at Exodus 14, 10 through 18, just briefly. And you might think it's quite odd. What are we doing? Why, why aren't we in Luke talking about Mary and Joseph? Well, we'll get there. But to understand that the, the need for a particular stance of the heart was communicated by Moses at this moment. And so I want to just share with you just, just briefly as we look at this today, just by way of an outline, you can see this. is First of all, there is a gift of silence that comes through instruction. That's kind of the first idea. And then secondly, there's a gift of silence that it creates an ability to understand the rescue. And then there's a gift of silence that is pursued so that God-honoring words are Used. Okay, I'll explain that. It's a little bit complicated, but very simply I want you to know that the the Exodus was a dramatic moment when scholars who say something like two million Israelites were gathered at the Red Sea. They had been barely cooperative with Moses. They had suspicions about Moses. The theme, by the way, for the book of Exodus is this: Moses is authorized. And as you watch this, they are resisting Moses throughout the whole process. And would you turn now, just let's read this, and I'm going to give you some, some insights into what's going on, how this relates to the gift of silence. Look at verse 10 of chapter 14. When Pharaoh drew near, this is the armies are pursuing, near. the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, now listen to this bitterness and sarcasm. Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Listen to that. What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Verse 12. Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Now you talk about uh, spinning, spinning truth. I don't recall them at saying this. Here's what they say. Didn't, didn't you remember us saying this, that leave us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. They remind me of that little donkey in, uh, in uh, what is it? What's, the, what's Eeyore. Yeah, Winnie the Pooh, thank you. And the little donkey, the little purple donkey, and he has this cloud all over him, and he is the one who doesn't believe anything, right? This is the Eeyore syndrome. And I would be like them. I think I would be, I would be pretty freaked out to see these massive chariots, the most sophisticated army of its day, probably the largest army, coming after you. And even though you would seen some pretty impressive things that God had done in the plagues, the army had not been taken out yet. But I want you to notice that the gift of silence is critical for them to understand. Notice what, notice what, Pharaoh then, excuse me, notice what Moses says to them. And Moses said to the people, verse 13, Fear not, stand firm. And see key words, the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. And the final instruction is very important. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. That's your role. I don't know if you've ever considered this, but these some two million people, when the waters parted, that it is pro- it is likely, now you have children... Perhaps crying and, and a lot of, that's a lot of people. But can you imagine them scurrying in utter silence? In the Bible, when the word silence is used, it is consistently used when God is about to enact judgment. We even in our day, when a court is, uh, when, when a judge enters the room. The bailiff will say to everyone, rise. And everyone should know that they are to be silent when the judge enters the room. Someone of greater stature has entered the room. Silence is to accompany God's judgment of Pharaoh. And so I I, want to just sort of work through a, a bit of a definition here, and I'm, I'm going to be a little bit loose here. You're not going to find silence in, um, in a systematic theology book, I don't think, as a, as a subject. So we're going to be a little bit loose and kind of figure out what on earth this, this gift is, but I would say that silence is a reverence that moves the heart Godward, and it is pr- produced by a profound humility. It is hard for us to stop talking. It's just hard. And it is a description of the soul moved to comprehend the wonder of God. It's a description of something that happens in the soul, the gift of silence. And so I want to just kind of move through this today and just explore this a bit with you. Moses is authorized, and the key thing he wants the people of God to do is to be silent. Now, what God does is he comes along with a wonderfully important thing to help us become silent it is difficult and it is painful, but it is very, very important. Now, in Reformed Presbyterian circles, we have borrowed this from our old friend 500 years ago, Martin Luther, who understood clearly what the role of God's law is to be to do. The role of laws, God's law in Romans 1, 2, and 3, you can read this, it is to get religious people and irreligious people to stop talking. When you are guilty before God's law, silence is supposed to to follow. God has a way of helping us become silent. It's an important step in the process of appreciating a Savior. Man is born as a boaster. We are boasting in our righteousness. We are boasting in our achievements. It is hard to get people to stop boasting. But with the preaching of the law, that means God's standards are too high for you to keep. You have broken them not only externally but internally. You have violated them, shattered them. We are all, in this sense, covenant breakers. And the silence that's vitally important uh, for all of us before we will hear the gospel is we will not become desperate for a savior unless we understand that we are sinners. It's interesting that silence accompanies the first preaching of the gospel in the book of Acts. There's a moment when this gathered... uh, these gathered Jews in Israel, in, Israel, in Jerusalem, have come from, from many parts of the earth to come and to, and to celebrate in, in Jerusalem. And what happens is on the day of Pentecost, God delivers the Spirit in a powerful way to his church. And Peter stands and he preaches. But prior to that, uh, during, the, during the message, I should say, There's there's a crying out of the people because they are convinced there are those there who were actively part of the crucifixion of Jesus. They cried out, convicted by God's law, they cry out, then what must we do to be saved? And then there's an extraordinary silence where Peter then pierces that silence with these words, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So I just want to have you go back to that great uh, deliverance of God's people, Israel, the parting of the Red Sea, and then com- the commandment that was so instructive to be silent. Be silent and watch the deliverance of God. That's what we're doing in Advent. We're seeking to have this gift of silence produce in us a wonder for the the, the gift of Jesus Christ and, and his deliverance. And then secondly, silence sort of creates an ability to understand the rescue. Because the text goes on to explain uh, we hear God talking to Moses. Moses, put your staff in the water. And here's the rest of the text. It says, uh, Exodus 14, let me get to that. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people to Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. In the silence... There's a continuing grasp of what's under, being under, uh, to, to understand about, about our salvation. You see, as you make progress in the Christian life, there has to be an accompanying humility. The book of James, in chapter one, talks about receive the word of God implanted, which is able to save your souls. And strangely, there is among God's people a, a, uh, an, a sort of an unsettling familiarity. Oh, yeah, I know that. John 3.16. Sort of we have this a little bit of a cavalier view of Scripture. We're not remaining silent, teachable, humble before his word. Do, let me ask you, are you interacting with his word these days? Is the word of God vital in your life? Are you spending time with this incredible revelation of God as a gift for you? Do you sit before this Word, and are you enjoying God's gift of of speech to you? Silence is the stance of the heart that is humble. That says, "I need yet more. I need. I need more knowledge." When you read the New Testament epistles, it's quite interesting to watch the, how, how, um, how the need for further understanding, that's why they're there. Colossians needed further understanding. Uh, Ephesians needed further understanding. Israel, Moses, needed further understanding of how this is all going to work and how God would have a triumph over Pharaoh's armies we are always in need of the humility to receive further understanding. When I was in seminary, I would hear something, say, uh, well, the first, the first month of a s- semester, a professor would say something, and I'm so bright theologically that I thought it was wrong. There's just no way. That can't be true. And I, and I would sort of, in myself, think to myself, I don't know how this guy got in here, <laughs> but that, that just ain't right. That's not right. So, and I would sit back, and uh, and now I learned that there were others who were uh, a little bit, well, I didn't want to be proven a fool, so I didn't say anything. But there were others who were not quite as wise. And uh, they would say something in order to correct the professor, and that was always interesting to watch. And so I learned. I thought, well, I I think he's wrong, but I'll wait. And then uh, about three months later, I would realize that he was right. And when that happens to you about 194 times, you become teachable. You see. It just happens. It happens to the brightest seminarians. It just happens. And, and for us today, for us to break forth in song, which is what Mary does, which is what so many in the Advent scenes do. There's a lot of singing going on. For us to break forth in song, we must come to that place of humility and say, oh Lord, teach me more. Help me understand the rescue. You see, you had a core inability to care. I want to remind you of this. You did not have a capacity to understand salvation until God gave that to you. Ephesians 2.4 says there's a wonderful transition, but God, it's one of the most important ones in the whole Bible, but God, who is rich in mercy, caused us to be alive. God, you speak about silence, God silently brought you a new nature. He didn't have a conversation with you. Well, would you like to have a new nature? Would that work for you? How would you like it delivered? <laughs> it It was not a conversation. it was his mercy. God who is rich in mercy and the old old, old the, the way of describing it is that he quickened us old old english He, he, he awakened us out of the dead, and that 's how you 're able to hear the Savior call you before that happened. you were hostile to God, the name of Jesus was not interesting to you. It was not sweet. So in order to make you teachable, he gave you a new nature. That's how desperate we were. And there's enough of our residual old nature if you, to prideful ways where we, we say, I do not need to be silent and humble before God. You see, as we hear the bitterness of God's people before the great rescue, even on the other side of the great rescue, we still can have a residual bitterness, self-reliance, and, uh, and sort of a suspicion about the goodness of God. Now, I want to just explore just for a bit this woman who shows up in Luke chapter 2. And she comes sort of out of nowhere. She is an elderly woman. It's interesting that uh, I can't think of many people where we find out their exact age. But in Luke 2, 37, we learn that she is 84. Her name is Anna. She is a prophetess. We don't know a lot about what that role was in these early days. But she had spent, listen carefully, she had spent decades in the temple. It was her life. And I'm going to suggest to you that she pursued silence. She pursued worship. She pursued a quiet place to contemplate, to hear, to peruse, listen to the scriptures. She was on to something. She was part of a small remnant of people who were aware that something was on something was going on. And there's no doubt that she was, in my mind, she was watching every child that came into that temple to be dedicated or to be circumcised. She was watching because she was on alert. Something was up. And we find in verse 38 that she she began to speak and gave thanks to God because she knew Jesus Christ was, was present, and she began to explain, uh, in the flow of it, it looks like she's explaining it to Joseph and Mary, and she began to speak of him to, to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And I just want to explore that, that silence is something that is a gift from God, but it is also something that we are to pursue. Do you find yourself noisy these days? Do you find your soul just filled with things? It is vitally important that we spend time reflecting, contemplating this moment in history and to do that well. And from that will flow God-honoring words, people will become different. When you spend time before the face of God, before the face of faces, the role of people will take on a different role. They will become, in a sense, more important because they're made in God's image. You'll treat them differently. And in another way, they'll become less important because you don't want to bow down to them and their approval be a reputation seeker. You want to love them more and need them less. This is happens as a congregation begins to take worship uh, seriously. It's a response of, of the heart with deep gratitude and humility. Again, the Pascal, I quote him often. He was the first one who was on to the modern spirit. The modern spirit is in a spirit of restlessness in which we cannot sit in a room quietly and be at peace. Augustine famously said that you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Anna spent time seeking God in the temple and she discovered that the Messiah was there and present. Psalm 65.1 says, Praise waits for you in silence. Let me wrap this up by uh, connecting us with a famous Christmas carol. One evening in 1816, a young pastor named Joseph Moore was walking home from an Advent service. It had been held in a home because the church organ was not working. So they gathered in a home and they read Luke 1 and Luke 2, and this pastor, Near Salzburg, Austria, uh, walked along a mountainside ridge, took kind of a long way home, and looked down upon the village where he lived. And it was described in a in a report about this or a, a, a summary that he saw a silent majesty about this village. The night was incredibly silent, and out of this silence, he wrote a poem, and we know it as the Christmas Carol, Silent Night. Now, thousands of songs have been produced in our lifetime. There have been a lot of one-hit wonders. It's interesting that this song is sung around the world. And since the 1860s, it has been sung in the United States. And it, is a, it has lyrics that describe a soul aware of silence, but the silence doesn't mean uh, a failure of meaning, the silence is packed with an extraordinary event. It is a night when a child is born. All is silent, and all is calm, but that doesn 't mean uh, nothing has happened. It is a profound poem about a carol. It, it has become a carol, and it, we now sing it with tremendous, uh, with its tremendous significance. Some of the lyric, holy night, son of God, loves pure light. Radiant beams from thy holy face with the dawn of redeeming grace. Jesus, Lord at thy birth. In the silence, we are to receive this extraordinary, decisive intervention by God. It is the true parting of the waters to rescue us from sin. The dawn of redeeming grace is upon us. And may we love this gift of silence, this reverence of the heart that comes over us, this profound humility that is needed to learn and to grow. And may we sit in the silence and become a people of, of Scripture and of worship that before God's face, we, we begin to now speak words to each other like Anna that tell us that we have a Redeemer. I know we have problems. I know we have troubles. I know we have circumstances we'd, we'd rather change. But we also, in the midst of all this, we have a Redeemer. May God move our hearts in this in this Godward direction. Let's pray.